should we sin bigger to make grace bigger? If, as Paul taught at the end of chapter 5, we saw this last week, that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, should we therefore make sin to abound so that we can make grace to abound all the more? Should we sin bigger in order to make grace bigger? There's many ways in which that question makes sense. It made sense to the people of the Roman church that Paul was writing to, because if you turn to chapter 5 at the end, Paul talks about where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He goes on to, in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 1, to articulate the question that he got in response to that teaching, which is, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So, it, it made sense as these Christians, the early believers, heard this teaching that God's grace looks all the greater, where sin is all the greater. Therefore, let's make sin all the greater so we can make God's grace all the greater. It's a, it's a question that continues to be asked, sometimes very audibly, vocally, sometimes just a little worm in the back of our minds that works away. You know, if, if I, to point to the picture, if I splash around in the mud, then it will make my cleaning, and the fact that I'm forgiven, surely it will make that all the more beautiful and glorious. Should we sin bigger to make grace bigger? It's a very important question, isn't it? It's a very influential question. Our answer to that is going to determine a lot in our Christian life. It will determine how hard we fight against sin, and it will determine how much we will consecrate ourselves to service. So, why shouldn't we? Because Paul says no to this question. You'll notice he says that, by no means. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Never, ever, ever, ever let your logic take you to that destination. So, he gets his answer up front, and then he explains his answer. He doesn't meander around to the answer. He just says, okay, here's the answer, and here's how we work it out. You know, children, sometimes in school, you might know the answer to a math question, it might look really obvious to you, and so you might just write out, and the teacher will say to you, show me you're working. Well, well, here Paul has the answer, but then he shows us his working. He shows us how certain truths bring us to this conclusion, and that's what we want to look at tonight. We want to see, first of all, we died with Christ to sin. We died with Christ to sin. You might say, well, what's the connection? Like, what kind of connection is there between that 
graphic and this truth. Well, if you think of this ship, wherever it goes, all the containers on it go. When it arrives at a certain port, they arrive at a certain port. When it departs, they depart. Wherever the ship goes, they go. And this is the kind of illustration I want you to try and keep in mind as we consider this truth that we died with Christ and to sin. If you think of Christ as a ship and us as the containers. And so, wherever He goes, we go. Wherever He leaves, we leave. Keep that in mind as we look at this passage, which is difficult, okay? This is a passage that's challenged me a lot. I can't say I figured this all out. So, I'm going to try and keep to what is simple or simpler from this passage, because even the simple is still deeply profound and challenging to us intellectually and spiritually. It's hard to get our minds around this and to really grasp it and keep a hold of it. But insofar as we do, it will transform our Christian lives, our fight against sin, and our dedication to service. So, it's worth doing some work here with me tonight, I hope. So, what can we say here then? Well, in chapter 5, you'll remember the latter part of it was all about how Christ is every Christian's representative. He acts in their name. Where He acts, we get the benefit. Just as our political representatives act and we get the benefit, that's the theory, so Christ, when He acts, we get the benefit. Okay, so Paul's, Paul's given us that basic idea of representation, the one for the many. And here then, he tells us, when Christ died, we died with Christ. How do we see that? Well, we see it in verse 3. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Baptism here used in a way to suggest and teach unity. When we were united with Christ, we were united in His death. And then verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. We have been united with Him in a death like His. Verse 5, we know that our old self was crucified with Him. Verse 6. So, what do you see as you look at these verses? I hope when you see them taken together, you see what's on the left of the screen. When Christ died, we died with Christ. All these verses brought together are basically saying, when Christ died, we died with Him. When Christ died, we died with Him. But then it goes further. When Christ died to sin, we died to sin. Again, let's look at some verses. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. So again, just without going into all the details, I hope you can see these verses prove when Christ died to sin, we died to sin. Now, the question is, 
What does that mean? Well, dying to sin is basically saying when Christ died, it severed every legal connection and relationship He had with sin and guilt. Christ was made sin in the sense of He carried the sins of His people. He suffered the punishment for His people's guilt. He was legally connected to their sin and their guilt. He bore that Himself. Uh, But when He died, when He exhausted God's wrath, that connection between sin and guilt and Christ was severed. Just as death severs us from all legal obligations, severs us from the realm of law and guilt, it means justice cannot touch us anymore. So, when Christ died, He was severed. He was cut off. He was separated. He was disconnected from any further connection, relationship, legal or otherwise, to sin and guilt. That's what it means Christ died to sin. But what Paul is telling us here is that when Christ died to sin, we also died to sin. That although we were not born, although we are about 2,000 years on, that in a very real sense, we were there, united to Christ, and regarded as going through exactly the same experience as He did. And that there, our legal connection to sin and guilt was also severed once and for all, never to be repeated, decisive, emphatic, complete severance from sin and guilt. And so, Paul says here in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. Do you get his logic? It's quite, it's a lot of steps, but there is a logic to this. Christ died. Christ died to sin. Therefore, he says, if you're united with him, you also died there. That's how God views you as having died there, and you died to sin there. It's, it's really, the best way I can try and describe it is the whole idea of time travel. You know, the, the concept that's in a lot of science fiction movies that you can somehow travel backwards or travel forwards in time that you go in through some door or take some potion, and miraculously you can be back 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, 2,000 years, and, and you're living there as if, just as really as you're living here. And, and Paul is saying, consider yourselves as having died to sin there. Time travel by faith, and it takes faith. He's saying, by faith, believe that you were as much at that cross as Christ was, that you died to sin as much as Christ died to sin, that you were severed from every legal connection to sin as much as Christ was, no more, no less. Consider that. He's not saying 
dies to sin, he's saying, consider yourself already dead to sin, as having already died that death. He's saying, persuade yourself of it. Argue yourself to that point. Take these verses and time travel back to that place to see that when Christ died, I died. When He died to sin, I died to sin. Consider yourself there. This is actually the first exhortation in the whole book of Romans. So, up to this point, it's all doctrine, doctrine, teaching, teaching, facts, facts. And this is the first practical application of the facts of the doctrine. This is what Paul has all been working towards. He's saying if all of that is true, and it is, therefore consider yourselves dead to sin. Go back to the cross and see yourself as freed from sin and its penalty as Christ was freed from sin and its penalty. How, how, how freed was Christ? A hundred percent freed. Sin had no more hold. Death had no more hold. Guilt had no more hold. He was completely freed. Maybe a way of thinking like this is, you know, in 1863, January 1, Abraham Lincoln issued the Declaration of Emancipation, which freed not all the slaves, because not all the states were included, but freed slaves in a number of the states. It was an incredible moment in American history, the Declaration of Emancipation, of freedom, of deliverance. And from that moment, slavery was abolished. Any legal hold that slave masters had over their slaves was dissolved. It was disconnected. Do you think that changed everything for the slaves as soon as they heard that? It didn't, actually. Some of the younger slaves, they embraced this and took their freedom and never looked back. They never thought of their master again. They never thought of the harsh conditions again. They never thought of the cruelty again. It was just done, over, and free. But a lot of the older slaves, those who had lived in these conditions for a long, long time, they found it really, really difficult to get out of that mentality of being the property of another man, of being owned, of having no time you could call your own, no talent you could call your own, no money you could call your own, no family you could call your own. And so, for many years, in some cases decades, a lot of these freed slaves still lived as slaves. They went back to their masters, and they took the same treatment from their masters, and they did the same work for so little reward. They just, they couldn't get their minds around this idea of being freed, of being dead to that old way, and that the law no longer had a hold over them. And, and that's what Paul's saying to, to us as Christians. He's saying, you know, you, you've maybe lived so long under the, 
the dominion, the mastery, the tyranny, and the enslavement of sin. And you've received a declaration of emancipation in the gospel. As all these verses prove, it's saying you've been freed from sin and death and guilt and punishment and condemnation. You're delivered. You're emancipated. These things have no further legal connection to you. They don't exist, he's saying, legally. And yet, and yet, and yet, how hard it is for us to grasp this. And that's why when, when temptation comes, when old sins rise up again, we might think like this, well, it's just me. It's what it used to be, and it's the same temptation. Yeah, let's just go with it. Let's just do it. That's who I am. I'll never change. This is just always going to be a problem for me. I might as well accept it and live with it. Paul's saying, consider yourselves dead to sin. That, that is no longer your identity. It's no longer your reality. No matter how much you're tempted, no matter how logical the temptation, no long, matter how persuasive, persuade yourself otherwise. In other words, remember, we died with Christ and to sin. When Christ died to sin, we died to sin. And therefore, we will die to sin. Christ died to sin legally. We die to sin legally. Therefore, we will die to sin in our daily life of sanctification. Use this reality. Use this truth. So that when that temptation knocks on your heart's door and says, come on, let's get back together again. Let's do what we used to do. I mean, that's who you are. You say, no, 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 no. You're, you're dead to me, and I've died to you. Christ's cross was like a big guillotine that came down and said, no. It's over. That connection, that relationship, that dominion, that enslavement, finished. When Christ died to sin, we died to sin, so I will die to sin. Well, you might say, okay, that's, that's dying to sin. What about rising again with Christ? Do, do we get representation going through death into that newness of life? Yes, that's what Paul says here. He's saying, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, we live with Christ and to God. Just as we died to sin with Christ, we live with Christ to God. And I've used this picture because, again, trying to cement the idea in our minds that like a mother with a baby, wherever she goes, the baby goes. Whatever life the mother has, the baby has. 
They are so connected. They are so joined together. There's such a bond of love and dependence. And Paul's saying here, think of yourself like that as well. Not just dead with Christ to sin, but alive with Christ to God. Again, let's look at some of the language here. When Christ arose, we arose. If we've been united with Him in a death like this, verse 5, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now, if we have died with Christ, verse 8, we believe we shall also live with Him. You see these verses teaching Christ arose, we arose. Then it goes further. When Christ lived to God, we lived to God. 9 and 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So, Christ not only died to sin, He lived to God. And then it says, in order that, verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. How do you get that newness of life, verse 11? You also must consider yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, we live with Christ and to God as much as we died with Christ to sin. These are two opposites, but connected, so you cannot have one without the other. And if you think of this, Christ's post-tomb life was very different to His pre-tomb life. His pre-tomb life was a life that was lived in weakness and frailty, constant assault and suffering, tempted again and again and again because of His connection, legal connection with sin. But when He rose from the dead, as we see from the pages of the gospel, it's a completely new life, isn't it? There's a new power. There's a new confidence. There's a new glory. There's a new energy. There's a new optimism. There's a new spirit of triumph. And here, Paul is saying, just like that, you too have to consider yourself in that way. This is to be your identity. You are no longer to think of yourself as pre-tomb life, but as post-tomb life. As He rose from the dead, He regards you as having rose, risen from the dead with Him. As He rose to newness of life, you are to regard yourselves as risen to newness of life. And the more we see ourselves alive to God, the more we will live to God. Again, think back to the slaves. It wasn't just that they had a problem in getting away from their old master and their old ways, but they also had a problem in embracing a new life. You, you mean I can actually have my own money? No, that's dangerous. You mean that I can I can actually leave this property and travel. That's really dangerous. They used to come after me with guns and, and get me to come back with punishments and torture. You mean I can have a family I can call my own? That's, that's sort of dangerous. You mean I can choose what job to do? That, that seems too much for me. And similarly as Christians, it's so hard for us at times to escape 
our old identity. It drags us down. It limits our liberty and our freedom and our enjoyment of all the privileges of being children of God. And that's why Paul lists all these verses to prove again and again and again, just as Christ arose to newness of life, consider yourselves, persuade yourselves, reason yourselves to this. And when you do, that will give you new power to serve, just as embracing death to sin enables you to die to sin. So embracing this newness of life will enable you to serve with a new life, a new energy, a new enthusiasm. Because you'll say, when a, a service opportunity presents itself to you, an opportunity to serve the Lord and His people, or serve the community in a God-centered way, instead of saying, oh, well, that's, that's not for me. Yeah, that, that's, that's too much for me. I'm really, I'm really not up to that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worthy of that. And, and, and whatever reasoning whispers away, we'll say, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm alive to God. I have a newness of life. This is my new identity. We live with Christ and to God. So again, we say when Christ lived for God 2,000 years ago, stepped out of that tomb, we are regarded in that same way as living to Him. Therefore, we will live to Him in the present. So, should we sin bigger to make grace bigger? Should we sin bigger to make grace bigger? No wonder Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We've been united with Him in a death like His. We'll certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Therefore, time travel to make grace bigger and sin smaller. I wasn't sure when I used this picture of anyone in America would get it. Does anyone get it? Doctor Who? Anyone? Okay, there's some younger people and some nerds that get it. So, this was a program in the UK, I have to do a bit of background here, where this Doctor Who would go into this police, um, used to see these a lot in the streets of the UK, you know, before people had phones, the police would have these booths all the way along the road, in different places where police could run and call in help and then run back again. Well, in this program, Doctor Who, the doctor had a TARDIS, this was what it was called, and he would go into this police box like this, and when he went in, it was like a massive place. And through this, he could travel backwards in time and forwards in time into new realities. Look it up on YouTube if you don't believe me, okay? Just avoid the Daleks. Time travel by grace to make grace bigger and sin smaller. That's really Paul's argument here. Time travel back to the cross. Faith is our TARDIS that enables us to go back to that cross and to see ourselves right there dying to sin with Christ, and also then to the tomb, living to God with Christ. And so, He's calling us here tonight. He's basically saying to us, 
superabounding grace means superabounding holiness. Not superabounding grace, therefore superabounding sin. No, no. Superabounding grace means superabounding holiness. Let's pray. We pray, Lord, for those who have not died to sin and lived with Christ, that You would take them back to the cross and by faith sever them from sin and link them and connect them with Christ's newness of life. And for those of us who have been, who were represented by Christ, and we're sure of that by faith, Lord, take us back by faith so that we realize who we really are, that we are dead to sin, and we are alive to God. In Jesus' name, amen.